Hey everybody, welcome to the 60th episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast, along with all of our other news episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bolton from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze, educate, or you could also support us on ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze, educate as well, and we will head into the news. All right, before we get started, you guys have helped us reach over 21,000 downloads and over 1,400 followers on Spotify, so thank you for that. All right, getting started with Europe and Eurasia here. This is the big story of the week. We are not talking about the blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh. We are indeed talking about war erupting in the region in the form of a third war for Nagorno-Karabakh. On the 19th, Azerbaijan launched a new, quote, anti-terrorist operation against the de facto Republic of Artsakh that is, of course, populated by ethnic Armenians in the region. This military operation sought to capture the remainder of Nagorno-Karabakh that was not taken in 2020 and likely also sought to drive out the remaining ethnic Armenian population in the region as well. Azerbaijani airspace has been closed to Armenia. The former said it will not target civilian infrastructure, but despite that statement, Azerbaijan has struck multiple civilian targets in the capital and in other villages and towns in the region as well. Israeli-made Harap suicide drones, rocket artillery, and airstrikes are being used heavily. Azerbaijan says that it notified Russian peacekeepers of the impending operation. Russia says that they were not notified until mere minutes before the operation began. At least one Russian peacekeeping outpost was destroyed by shelling from Azerbaijan Additionally, multiple Russian peacekeepers were killed during the fighting. Azeri troops fired on Russian forces driving in a marked UAZ Patriot vehicle that was going down a highway. Five Russian peacekeepers were killed in that attack, and the Azeri attackers reportedly stole their belongings before leaving the scene. Among the five killed was the deputy commander of all Russian peacekeeping forces in the region. That is Captain First Rank Ivan Korgan, who was also the deputy commander of submarine forces for Russia's northern fleet that just so you know that's like the equivalent of a colonel in the army or marine corps or just a regular captain in in the navy in the US another among the dead is colonel Tagir Murad Karayev of the 29th nuclear biological and chemical defense brigade of the central military district i assume he was the unit's commander which is currently part of the peacekeeping force some of the others that were killed include another colonel and one lieutenant colonel. The rank of the last peacekeeper that was killed has not yet been disclosed. This is not the first time Azerbaijan has killed Russian troops in the region. In the 2020 war, just hours before the Second Karabakh War ended, Azerbaijani air defenses shot down a Russian Mi-24 helicopter that was operating out of the 102nd military base in Armenia. That helicopter was escorting a Russian convoy near the border, with Nakhchivan, which is a territory of Azerbaijan that is separate from the rest of the country. It is Armenia's wedged in between it and the rest of Azerbaijan, I should say. President Aliyev of Azerbaijan reached out to President Putin to apologize for the incident and offered to provide 
financial assistance to their families. Both countries have been working to investigate the attack. Azerbaijan has allegedly dismissed Gia Abbasov, who is the commander of the First Corps, because of the incident. His unit was the one that allegedly carried it out. But this is coming from pro-Aziri source, so take it with a grain of salt. Azerbaijan's general prosecutor also claims a separate incident occurred in which Artsakh Defense Forces, those are ethnic Armenians, killed one Russian peacekeeping troop and wounded another. No Russian or Armenian or Artsakh sources have acknowledged this, so I would take that with a major grain of salt as well. Azerbaijan has blocked TikTok temporarily, likely to keep the operational security of its forces intact as they move throughout the region. Turkey, of course, has already come out in full support of Azerbaijan, like I think everybody expected. Armenian Prime Minister Nicole Pashinyan has said that the armed forces of Artsakh have no connection to Armenia and confirmed that his country will not go to war with Azerbaijan over the operation. Of course, in the last war in 2020, Armenia was heavily involved fighting alongside the Artsakh Defense Forces. Pashinyan believes that Azerbaijan seeks to draw Armenia into a larger war, which is one of his reasons for not intervening on Artsakh's behalf. The reality is that Armenia's back is really against a wall. Ethnic Armenians in Artsakh are under a very real threat of genocide in the region is very historically and culturally important to Armenia. Not intervening in the war will likely not be a very popular move politically. Many protests have already happened outside government buildings in the Russian embassy in Yerevan, Armenia's capital. Some of those protests have turned violent and people have been arrested. On the other hand, though, Armenia probably couldn't help Artsakh if it wanted to. The blockade of the Lachkan Corridor, which of course we have talked about for months before, meant that Artsakh's local defense forces haven't been getting resupplied for at least nine months, if not longer. Any Armenian force would have to break through that blockade and fight their way through Azeri forces to reach Stepanakart, the capital of Artsakh. This would be no easy task, and the Armenian military is not as technologically advanced as Azerbaijan's, and the military was also heavily degraded in the 2020 war, and that remains an issue to this day. Keep in mind, the situation is very fluid, so by the time you hear this, some of this information could very well be outdated. The situation is moving very fast. And a lot of villages outside of the capital are still cut off from the rest of the region. So it's there's a lot we don't know at this point. But fighting has erupted along the entire contact line between Artsakh and Azerbaijani forces. Azerbaijan has likely captured Charktar and Getavan in the direction of the Sarsang Reservoir. In the copper mine of Kassin, they've captured plenty of other places as well, including the village of uh Yeksakau, excuse me, that village has been completely surrounded, as have its 150 inhabitants. It very well uh, may have been captured at this point. The village of Yokori Oraktag has been captured as well. Civilian evacuations have been recorded in the districts of Ashkaran, Martuni, Martakert, and Susha. Azerbaijani troops also launched an assault in the vicinity of Martuni, but reportedly repelled. However, Martuni's mayor was reportedly killed during that fighting. Azerbaijani troops have also captured the Amaris Monastery. That monastery is one of the most sacred Armenian religious sites in Artsakh. It was established in the early 4th century by St. Gregory the Illuminator. Azerbaijan denies its Armenian heritage, calling it, quote, Caucasian Albanian instead. Some in the region fear that Azerbaijan will demolish the monastery, so we'll see if that happens. After roughly a day of fighting, a Russian-brokered ceasefire was announced. The terms heavily favor 
Azerbaijan and, if followed through, ensure the country's complete control over Nagorno-Karabakh. The Artsakh Defense Forces will be disbanded and disarmed. Artsakh authorities are currently in the Azerbaijani city of Yevlak to discuss the future of the region and, in particular, the future of ethnic Armenians after Azerbaijan integrates the territory with the rest of its country. Although so far, Artsakh claims that no security guarantees have been made for its citizens, so we'll see how that progresses. Azerbaijan claims that Artsakh soldiers that lay down their arms will receive amnesty and will not face punishment for being part of what Azerbaijan calls an illegal armed group. Armenian Prime Minister Pashinyan says that his country did not participate in the drafting of that ceasefire agreement. Locals have begun making their way to Stepanakart, particularly the airport, which is the headquarters of the Russian peacekeeping troops in the region. Multiple thousands of people are there to simply seek protection from Azerbaijani shelling. Despite the ceasefire, shelling is still being reported in some frontline villages that were not evacuated. There are reports that Azerbaijani troops have taken the entire civilian population of Takavard prisoner, that is a village in the region, and the residents of Martakert have reportedly decided not to surrender and will, quote, fight to the end. That is just a report. All things that are really coming out of this region are kind of difficult to verify. So, again, just a report we don't know for sure. Red Cross convoy was recently seen heading towards Martakert to evacuate wounded civilians. I haven't been able to find out if they ever reach that city, though. Again, hard to verify what exactly is going on. There was also a report going around that Artsakh General Karen uh, Javlayan and his forces have refused to surrender and disarm, instead uh, possibly going towards a guerrilla campaign against Azerbaijan. That is not unlikely. Again, that claim is coming from a pro-Aziri source. Take it with a grain of salt. It's hard to verify. Additionally, gunfire is still being heard in and around Stepanakart. That is verified. Aziri forces reportedly made their way into two of the city's districts, but were stopped from advancing further by members of the Artsakh Defense Forces that haven't already surrendered. Unofficial reports claim that at least 150 Aziri troops were killed in the operation. Artsakh's human rights uh, ombudsman says that at least 200 people have been killed, including 10 civilians. Another 400 have been wounded. The true toll is likely much higher. As I was saying earlier, many villages remain cut off from government authorities, so we really just don't know. Arman Tatayan, the former human rights ombudsman of Armenia, claims that thousands of people in Artsakh remain missing. This claim is quite possible. As I said, many villages and towns have been cut off from the capital, Sabanakart. Not a lot of communication in and out of those villages. The lack of food, electricity, gas, medicine, and other necessities that we have spent months talking about only makes the situation worse. This is, of course, due to Azerbaijan's nine-month blockade of Artsakh. Additionally, there are serious fears of Azerbaijani troops carrying out genocide in captured areas, like I was saying before as well. An Azeri government official responding to those fears uh, said that if a genocide were to happen, it would be the fault of ethnic Armenians in the area. We reported on that in a recent episode as well. I believe that was two news episodes ago. Azerbaijani telegram channels have been posting photos, and I've said it once, I'll say it again. Don't let your kids listen to this. This is not, these type of podcasts are not something you want your kids hearing because some of the stuff that I talk about is just horrible. 
And I don't know why, but whenever I talk about something that Azerbaijan does, it's just like, it's awful. So don't let your kids listen to this. Azerbaijani telegram channels have been posting photos and information of ethnic Armenian children offering money in exchange for their abduction, murder, and or rape of these children. Reports have also been flowing in of child abductions in the districts of Stepanakar that are controlled by Azerbaijan and also executions of civilians, including children. As you can tell, the fear of a new genocide against these ethnic Armenians is very real. Moving on to a different topic, tensions between Ukraine and some of its neighbors are ramping up. The country plans to sue Poland, Hungary, and Slovakia. This is coming from Huggin Immune Intelligence. The three countries Ukraine plans to sue have banned imports of Ukrainian agriculture products, mainly grain. These bans were announced by all three countries together on the 15th after European Union-wide restrictions on Ukrainian grain were allowed to expire. The three say that they enacted these bans to protect their domestic markets, which have been flooded with cheap Ukrainian agricultural products since the invasion began, thus outperforming domestic producers. This is due to the blockade and captures of Ukrainian ports by Russian forces, restricting the global trade of Ukrainian grain, which is a major export for the country. The agricultural trade has been a major source of revenue for Ukraine since the invasion began, and it is afraid that it will lose much of that revenue due to these bans from the three countries. Ukraine did not say when it would sue those countries in the World Trade Organization, but said that it planned to do so soon. Trade Representative Taras Kochka said that his country may place retaliatory bans on food products from Poland and cars from Hungary. Unfortunately, thanks to some mainstream news outlets, the situation has become entangled with another issue between Ukraine and Poland. Poland recently announced that it has decided to stop donating weapons to Ukraine. Poland has been a major supporter and supplier of weapons to Ukraine and has certainly led the rest of Europe in this regard since last year. Poland, for example, has given Ukraine more tanks than any other nation, even the U.S. and Britain, for example. It has also given armored vehicles and self-propelled howitzers as well, among other things. While this issue is not tied to the issue of Ukrainian grain bans at all, multiple mainstream media outlets irresponsibly made that connection. These outlets either claimed or alluded to Poland making this decision in retaliation to Ukraine's plan to sue it in the World Trade Organization. In reality, Poland has decided to stop giving Ukraine weapons for the time being because Poland is keeping these weapons for its own stockpile, which is in need of replenishment. As we said, Poland is a leading nation in terms of how much it is supplied to Ukraine. The country holding off on weapon shipments in order to supply its own military is very reasonable and understandable. Now, Polish President Andrzej Duda did clarify his country's stance. Poland has contracts to supply Ukraine with weapons, and he intends to complete those contracts. However, he did confirm that Poland will not consider supplying Ukraine with new weapons that it receives from the U.S. and South Korea. It's made quite a few arms acquisitions in the past couple of years. Outside of already existing contracts, it isn't clear if Poland will supply Ukraine with more weapons. It may, it may not. Duda said that Poland may transfer more weapons to Ukraine as their replacements from the U.S. and South Korea are put into service. Hopefully, now you understand that the two issues of grain bans and weapon shipments are not related. Although, as some of you have said in my comments section, it isn't smart to bite the hand that feeds you. Moving on to Russia, a video emerged over the week of a very odd incident in Irkutsk Oblast. 
Several dozen private security forces armed with rifles, body armor, and camouflage clothing captured an area belonging to NK Delisma ZAO, that is a Russian oil company. The video shows the men shoving employees to the ground, detaining them, and firing warning shots into the air. Delisma is owned by Alexei Kotkin, Kotin, excuse me, a Russian banker who is also the former owner of Ugra Bank. In 2019, Kotin was placed under house arrest for being connected to the embezzlement of over 238 billion rubles from Ugra Bank, which in today's exchange rate would be about $2.5 billion. Income from all of Kotin's assets has been turned over to the Russian government. Additionally, Dulisma is in the process of bankruptcy, but it isn't 100% clear that a buyer for the debt has been found. Local media outlets claim that these armed men were sent by an unidentified man that purchased almost all of Delisma's shares as collateral by Rosakos Bank, which is a state-controlled bank. The bank issued loans to Delisma in 2014 and 2016 that totaled about 80 billion rubles, which is 840 million U.S. dollars. Rosakos Bank says that Delisma still owes about 53 billion rubles and has asked arbitration courts to intervene in the past. Independent news outlet Pravda Rufo claims that the same group of armed men were spotted in December last year raiding offices and facilities belonging to another oil company, Fayum Neft, which operates in West Siberia. Unnamed oil industry sources tell the outlets that both this raid and the one last December were likely organized by NZNP Trade, which is a company in the city of Tuyamen that has been expanding its Russian energy holdings. That company is owned by multiple companies controlled by Viktor Medvedchik and Taras Kozak, two former pro-Russian Ukrainian members of parliament and oligarchs that have been stripped of the Ukrainian citizenship since the invasion began. Medvedchik is a friend of Putin, and he is currently in Russia thanks to a prisoner exchange with Ukraine. Kozak is still wanted by the Ukrainian government and is believed to currently be in Belarus. NZNP has since denied any ties to this raid on Dulisma, and that's really all we know at this point. Moving on to the war, on the 20th, Ukrainian suicide drones attacked a fuel depot belonging to state-controlled energy company Rosneft in the Adler district of Sochi. Sochi is a major tourist destination on the Black Sea coast and was even hosted the Olympics at one point. The fuel depot is located near the Sochi International Airport. Ukrainian drones damaged at least two tanks in the depot. This further shows Ukraine's ability to strike Russia with near impunity. And we will take a quick break and we'll be right back with Africa. Okay, we're back with Africa. We have a tiny Niger coup updates. Again, military intervention by ECOWAS. It's not looking likely at all. They're still kind of hitting their chest, but yeah, it's probably not going to happen. It's been too long at this point. However, fearing the threat of an ECOWAS operation, Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso, which, as we've said before, are all under control of military governments, have all signed a mutual defense pact known as the Alliance of Sahel States. They will, of course, defend each other in the case that ECOWAS launches an operation against any one of them. I personally don't think it's going to happen. Who knows? It's really all we got for Niger. Moving on to Sudan, this is probably our bizarre 
story for the week. So as you know, fighting between the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Arabic Support Forces is continuing. The war so far forced 5.2 million people from their homes. 1.1 million of those have fled to other countries. Additionally, between 4,000 and 10,000 people have been killed since fighting began in mid-April. What's bizarre is there was an investigation by CNN that concluded that Ukrainian special services may have been behind multiple attacks on the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, which is backed by the Wagner Group, which we've spoken about many times before. An unnamed Ukrainian military source allegedly told CNN that one attack involved drones and a ground operation that was carried out by, quote, non-Sudanese military forces. The series of attacks began on September 8th, about two days after Wagner sent several trucks filled with weapons to RSF troops. Wagner initially offered the RSF weapons early on in the war in mid-April. Apparently, drones used in some of the attacks matched drone types used by Ukraine, of course, in the Russo-Ukrainian War. And in one video, the drone controller that was featured had Ukrainian text on it. Alleged drone footage from the attacks shows strikes in and around the city of Omdurman, which is across the Nile River from Khartoum, the capital city. The drones used appear to be DJI Mavic 3s, which had been used heavily by Ukrainian forces. These drones only have a maximum flying range of about 30 kilometers or 18 miles and a video transmission range of 15 kilometers, which suggests the operators were inside or very close to Omdurman. CNN has identified at least 14 drone strikes that were likely carried out by Ukrainian forces, in their opinion. Another video that CNN analyzed shows at least three Caucasian males in full combat gear with night vision goggles conducting a raid on a building. One of those men were also carrying a rocket launcher. The building was geolocated to a neighborhood in Omdurman, not far from where some of these strikes had taken place before. The Sudanese military has denied that Ukrainians are operating on the country's soil. After the investigation was published, Andrei Yusuf, a spokesman of the Defense Intelligence of Ukraine, said, quote, we can neither confirm nor deny this, end quote. He did say on a separate interview with Radio NV that, quote, Ukraine will punish, as we have already said, enemies and criminals all over the world, end quote. As we said before, Wagner has been offering assistance to the RSF since April. Before the fighting broke out, Wagner had a relationship with both the SAF and the RSF back when both groups were allied in the military rule of the country. After fighting began between the two, Wagner dropped the SAF for the RSF. One unnamed, quote, high-level Sudanese source told CNN that 90% of the RSF's weapons have come from Wagner that should be taken with a grain of salt considering the alleged source. Since the invasion of Ukraine began last year, Ukraine has been trying to foster international relationships. This is especially true in Africa in order to curb Russian influence in the region, which has been growing. The country's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, has made at least three trips to Africa in the past year, visiting 10 countries. Moving on to the America's Bulletin from the Borderlands, released on the 15th, we dive deeper into Cubans that are being recruited to join the Russian military in Ukraine. And we also look at a major drought that is affecting the Panama Canal and global trade as a result. Looking at Canada, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has accused the Indian government of being behind the killing of Hardeep Singh Najjar, a Canadian citizen 
that was killed in June. This is one of the big stories this week as well. Singh was a Sikh separatist leader that was declared to be a terrorist by India in 2020. Trudeau says that Canadian security agencies have evidence linking Indian government agents to the killing, which happened outside of a Sikh place of worship in Surrey, British Columbia. India claims that Najjar was the leader of the Khalistan Tiger Force, a militant group that seeks to establish a separate Sikh state in India's Punjab region that would be called Khalistan if it came to fruition. They also claim that he is linked to multiple terror plots and assassinations. Shortly before his death, Najjar was warned of a possible assassination attempt by the Canadian government. The Indian government did not take too kindly to these claims, and there's a very tense situation going on right now. We'll keep you guys up to date. Moving on to the U.S., we got a presidential race update. These polls are averages from 538. Biden's approval is at 41. That is up 1% from last week. Disapproval is at 55. That is down one point. Trump's favorability is at 41. Remains the same. His unfavorability is at 55. Also remains the same. Looking at the Democrat primary, Joe Biden is at 64%. That's actually down 3%. RFK Jr. is at 14%. He's up two points from last week. And looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 55%. Remains the same. DeSantis is at 13 He's down one point. And Vivek Ramaswamy is at 7%. He remains the same as well. Moving on, a U.S. Marine Corps F-35B fighter jet experienced an in-air mishap over South Carolina. The pilot was able to eject and is okay. However, the jet was lost for over a day. The aircraft flew over 60 miles on autopilot after the pilot ejected and was eventually found near Indian Town in Williamsburg County. The fact that the aircraft was missing for so long was the subject of many headlines. The military even asked local civilians for help locating the jet, but as I said, it's since been found. Moving on, General Charles Q. Brown of the U.S. Air Force has been confirmed by the Senate as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. His tenure will begin on October 1st when U.S. Army General Mark Milley retires from his post. General Brown joined the Air Force in 1984, a fighter pilot by trade. He has logged over 3,000 flight hours, including 130 combat hours. He is currently the Air Force Chief of Staff and has held many senior roles, including the Deputy Commander of U.S. Central Command, his confirmation comes amid Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's protest of confirming military promotions by unanimous consent. As we have reported on before, Tuberville has been protesting promotions over the DOD's abortion policies for months. More than 300 nominees are in limbo in the Senate as Tuberville is obstructing a unanimous vote. Senate Democrats have been criticizing him, saying that he is placing national security at risk However, unanimous consent is not needed to confirm an executive branch nominee. The Senate could hold regular votes to confirm or deny these nominees if it wanted to, but Democrat leadership in the chamber says that holding the votes would take too long, and that's why they want unanimous consent. General Brown's vote came in at 83 in favor and 11 opposed. Moving on, on the 20th, Denise Omuda Martinez pleaded guilty in federal court for attempting to traffic more than 92 pounds of cocaine into the U.S. back in June. Martinez is a Mexican councilwoman in the city of Reynosa in the state of Tamaulipas. Martinez told federal agents that she was supposed to deliver the cocaine to San Antonio, and she has successfully made such shipments in the past. Martinez does face life in prison, but her lawyer believes that her sentence may end up being somewhere 
around 10 years considering her lack of prior convictions and the guilty plea. It is worth noting that she is still currently a councilwoman in Reynosa. On the 22nd, U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, this is another big story of the week, Bob Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, and his wife, Nadine Menendez, were indicted by a federal grand jury in Manhattan on charges of bribery. It is worth noting that this is actually not the first time Senator Menendez has been charged with the bribery. The last time resulted in a hung jury and he was not convicted. Menendez, who is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and his wife allegedly engaged in a corrupt relationship with three businessmen from at least 2018 to 2022. The two allegedly accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes in exchange for Menendez using his influence as a senior senator to benefit the three businessmen and the nation of Egypt as well. Those businessmen are Jose Uribe, Wael Hanna, and Fred Dibas. They have all been charged in the indictment as well. The bribe payments were allegedly made in the form of at least $550,000 cash, 81 and a half ounces of gold bars valued at about $155,000, and payments on a home mortgage, a luxury vehicle, and other things of value that were discovered during a raid on the family's home by federal authorities in June last year. The senator is up for re-election next year. Some top Democrats have asked for him to resign his position as a senator. He has said that he will not do so. He is not going anywhere. So we will keep you guys up to date as that progresses as well. That is all I have for you guys. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker. Wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. You could also find us on Telegram as well, Analyze Educate. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on the app. You just listen to this podcast. Please consider supporting us again at patreon.com slash analyzeeducate or at ko-fi.com slash analyzeeducate. And I will see you guys soon.